Rosie Barua is a consultant in anaesthesia and intensive care medicine in Edinburgh. She's the chair of the Women in Intensive Care Medicine subcommittee and has an interest in medical law and point of care ultrasound. Her story on resilience takes us on a journey from suddenly losing the sight in one eye to making a successful return to work. It's an inspirational story with a lot of useful advice and I'm sure you will enjoy listening to it. So I've written a blog about this for the Women in Intensive Care group, so this story may be familiar to some people, but I suffer from a condition known as myopic choroidal neovascularization, which is a complication of being highly short-sighted. And the first I sort of knew about this was almost exactly two years ago, when on a Wednesday morning, I suddenly lost the vision in my right eye, just literally in, in a second. I went from having normal vision to being able to see very, very little. I have had previous retinal detachments in my left eye, so I'm very right eye dominant. And I've gone from just having a normal, Wednesday's normally my day off, so I was doing the laundry and cleaning the bathroom, and I suddenly just couldn't see anything. And that led to four months off work while I received treatment um, from uh, my brilliant ophthalmology team. But finally, unexpectedly, uh, I was in a position where I could return to clinical work. And so I had to work with my clinical directors to formulate a realistic return to work schedule, which was not just about the formalities of what shifts I was gonna do when I was gonna go back on the on-call rota, but also psychologically coping with not just coming back to work because I'd done that before having sort of taken a year off when I was a first year registrar maternity leave, but coming back to work potentially with a new, albeit now very mild, visual impairment and trying to work out if that would affect my clinical work and knowing when it would because sometimes you think, oh, I didn't see that or I couldn't see that, but actually it's because you weren't looking. And so knowing where I was going to psychologically draw the line between making sure I didn't put my patients at harm because I didn't have sufficient vision to be able to see things from just the paranoia and insecurity, meaning that I couldn't allow myself to perform at my best level and therefore not being able to perform um, at sufficiently high standards. So psychologically, there was a lot of preparation I had to do in returning to work after essentially acquiring this new physical impairment. Sounds really scary. You know, just going from being able to do whatever you want, really, I suppose, in your career to suddenly being faced with this situation that the things that you might not be able to do must be incredibly scary for you. If you can take us back to that first day when you were on your way to work, how you were feeling? I had the great fortune and continue to have the great fortune to work with an incredibly supportive bunch of colleagues. So I was off work for four months. I think when a colleague's off sick, it can be quite difficult, um, especially if you're a clinical lead or clinical director. You know, you want to know how they're doing, but if you contact them, it sounds like you're surreptitiously trying to work out when they're going to come back to work. But my clinical lead at the time and my clinical directors for both intensive care and anaesthesia were incredibly supportive of saying you just need to take the time that you need to take in terms of return to work. So the first thing was there was no time limit put on it. And that in itself was incredibly helpful. I didn't feel that I had this kind of red line in my diary that unless I was back to on call by this date, then my job was at stake. Or unless I returned to doing independent anaesthetic lists at a certain date, 
I was no longer the rock in that department. They quite explicitly said, this takes as long as it takes and there's no pressure on you to get back within a certain time frame. That's so, an amazing thing to have, isn't it? Because it's about getting the balance right, isn't it? When you, when you get back to work, I guess. And it sounds like you need an incredibly supportive department to be in. Yeah, the whole time I was off, they had to cover all of my off calls. I was never made to feel that they were having an additional burden because of that. But of course they were, because there's only 10 of us. And so if one person drops out, that increases everyone's on call. I wasn't copied into any emails about that, but I was still copied into emails about other things. So I still felt like I was part of the team. And I would occasionally go into work and people just look really pleased to see me and just really keen that I come back. And so all of that meant that on my first day back, I just felt really welcome and that people were happy to see me and that they were just happy for me to be able to do whatever I could do. So I was completely supernumerary for the first two or three weeks. So there was another consultant on the day with me. I mean, they could go to their office and do bits and bobs, but I always knew that I wasn't in any way exposed or would feel that I'd have to step up to doing something I didn't feel comfortable doing. So it was very much set at my pace, which again meant more work for everybody else, but they gave me the impression that they were doing it with pleasure, which was an incredibly, incredibly amazing thing to have as a colleague. And I will be forever in their in their debt for the way that they they handled the whole situation and communicated with me and made me feel when I was when I was returning. Did you have any moments when you were coming back feeling that you weren't going to be able to do the skills or have the knowledge that you needed to do your job? I mean, it's a combination of things. There's the the actual visual acuity. So, for instance, just being able to see a monitor. During an emergency intubation, you want to be able to sort of see what everything is on your monitor. And my distance vision is probably not as good as it was. But in reality, before, I probably wasn't spending a huge amount of time staring at the monitor. I would say to a person, right, I want you to tell me when the SATs drop below 90, and I want you to tell me when um, the systolic drops below 80, and then give two mils of that syringe that I've given you to hold in your left yeah. hand or, or whatever. And that's how I direct emergency intubation, so that I don't have to take on the mental load of directing everything. It's kind of like a country dance or something. You need to do it to remember how to do it. And being out of uh, practice with that a little bit, I remember leading an intubation with a very experienced registrar. Um, and I hadn't, I'd just fallen out of the habit of allocating roles like that to have one person who's on blood pressure watch and one person who's on SATS watch. And it was a patient with a big beard. And so we were struggling a little bit to, to ventilate him. And I was so busy helping the reg with that. Somebody just sort of piped up in the corner and systolic's 50. And actually, that could have happened at any point, at any time in my career. But because that was the first emergency intubation after coming back, you know, it was like, oh my goodness, I don't even know how to, how to lead on this. And if I can't lead on this, then what kind of consultant am I? But fortunately, the other consultant who was on afterwards, I just did that thing, you know, where you go into the, the patient's pantry and shut the door and just like, oh, I can't believe all that went. And she was just yeah. like, absolutely fine. That's that's why I was around. And that's why I stuck my head in. And that's what we do for each other all the time. And so again, it's that kind of offloading of the of the guilt from me of feeling that I'd done a bad thing to think that actually that could happen to anybody. And, you know, this is a skill that will take a little bit of time to come back. The patient didn't come to any harm. And there's never any harm in asking for help and having people around you at any point. So that the whole thing was a really positive experience. Are there any tips for dealing with that moment where you feel like you've lost your confidence, essentially? Yeah. 
I feel like I keep on harking back to how amazing my colleagues were because they were. And I don't know how I would have dealt with the whole thing if I worked in a department without colleagues that were that sympathetic and supportive and kind. Because for me, it's all about having people around me who, I don't know if you've heard of the concept of failure friends, you have this person that you just know that you can just speak to and just offload all the awful things that you've done that day. And they not only sympathize and make you feel better, but they also can just say, well, how would you deal with that the next time and, and actually help you be better? And, you know, I have a couple of consultant colleagues who I'm really close to who are probably my failure friends. And I think having them just to send a text message to and they just send something reassuring back. I, and I think a lot of people, have that internal monologue just saying to me, oh, well, that's not very good. Oh, this isn't going to go very well. Oh, I bet you're going to miss this, Ben Flon. And yeah. so being able to have an external monologue from my colleagues like that to sort of counter that from people, some of whom I've known for almost more than half my life, it's an incredibly, incredibly amazing thing to have at work, and I don't know how I would have managed. Yeah, it sounds incredible. How did you go about finding your failure friend? My failure friend? <laughs> well, my main failure friend is my colleague Murray, and he and I train together. Uh, and you know when you're trainees, I think if you bond as trainees, that, that just continues throughout your career. And we were appointed on the same day as consultants. And so we've gone through that journey of discovering a place within the consultant role and all the difficulties that you can encounter when you become a consultant, most of which are related to non-clinical things, I think, like how you actually deal with challenging situations and how you deal with um, colleagues that perhaps aren't aligning with the way that you want to go. And so he and I have a really, really great relationship where we can talk about these things and offer each other advice. And he's the kind of friend that doesn't tell me necessarily what I want to hear, but what I need to hear, which is usually positive things, but also can be, Rosie, well, how about you try and deal with this a different way because maybe your approach isn't going to work. So that's the most invaluable kind of friend to have who doesn't just give you the easy, oh, you're great, don't worry, it'll be fantastic, it'll be fine, but actually does acknowledge the fact that sometimes maybe your behaviour wasn't the best or or situations could be better, but certainly in the context of return to work, just a huge amount of of support from, from him and my other colleagues in helping me just counteract my negative internal monologue and just with practical things like he was the person I doubled up with in theatre when I went back to anaesthesia. So when I went back, I did three lists with him in theatre with me just to make sure I, I still knew how to do it. And I did. It's like riding a bike. Just knowing that you've got somebody to pick you up and put you back on your bike if you fall off is, is great. I think it's a great idea having a failure friend. <laughs> i have to have a look at some. Yeah. <laughs> when you got back to work, was there anything that didn't go well? I think there's still things that I find challenging, which sound like really little things. But for example, I find threading A-lines really tricky because they're so small. (laughs) But actually, I think, you know, when I speak to some of my colleagues, especially the older ones, they say, oh, yes, I find it very difficult too. So I don't think that's necessarily just unique to the the difficulties that I've had. But if you're having a difficult day, and for example, you know, cannula, sometimes I can find it a bit tricky. Um, There's such a thing that when you have different visual fields in both eyes, it's not diplopia, but it's almost like you have two conflicting pictures going into your brain. So I'll look at a vein as in the back of someone's hand, it's almost like I see two of them and I have to shut one eye. And so if you then miss a cannula, when you think, okay, I've just subjected this patient to, I mean, cannulas are really sore, to pain because of a shortcoming on my part, if you're already having a bad day, that can almost make you feel a little bit sort of tearful and and, and emotionally just off kilter, which is not good for good decision making. Because even in a very straightforward case, be it on ICU or um, in theatre, you you need to not be feeling emotional, whatever that emotion is. So what what do you do in that situation? How do you manage that? uh, How do I manage that? I'm not really sure. I think 
I, I sort of made a running joke of in theatre for trainees that I'm really bad at Benflons and they quite like it because then they usually get it in if I fail the first <laughs> one and that's always lovely as a trainee isn't it if your boss doesn't get it and you yeah, do it it's so the best moment of being a trainee yeah. yeah so it's like kind of passing on a little bit of joy to them that they got the Benflon that I didn't but I guess, again, it just comes down to trying to have a few stock phrases or stock thoughts or emotions that I can just draw upon to think, actually, do you know, I can do this. And I just need to not get in a situation where I feel so hit up that it, you end up in a negative spiral. Because for me, I don't know if this is the same for everyone, but particularly with practical procedures, I've always got the wee devil on my shoulder saying, oh, are you going to prang the carotid with this one? Or, oh, the part track is going to go into the esophagus. And I've you know, it's not going to happen, but to try and actively counteract that, that negativity. Yeah, and I guess sometimes that internal monologue can be useful, can't it? Because it mm. sort of makes you a bit more wary every time you do a procedure. Yeah. But how do you manage that when it's not doing the right thing for you? I don't practice mindfulness. It's something that, you know, it's on my list to get into. But just sort of mainly for me, for anything, it's drawing upon my previous experiences. We talk about imposter syndrome, and that's not really what this podcast is about. But a lot of people, I think, feel that they're in the situation that they're in by accident and they're, they're waiting to be found out. But I've been a consultant now for seven years. I've been a doctor for nearly 20. If I were an absolute liability, I'd probably be found out by now. If I were completely unable to run an ICU, somebody probably would have had a, a word with me about it. If I were completely incompetent at clinical skills, Someone, again, would probably have put me aside and said, you know, we've had our 15th day ticks of the week. I think you need to have some retraining. <laughs> so partly it's just a conscious effort to look back on the stuff that's gone right and think, well, if all of that's gone right and this situation is no different, it's probably going to be fine. It's an excellent strategy. Trying to um, fill your head with positivity, isn't it, rather than simply you know, negative thoughts take over. Yeah, and evidence-based positivity in the sense that, you know, I've been doing this for seven years and it's been okay. So it probably will continue to be okay. So finally, Rosie, for anyone coming back to work after a period of time off, what would your top tips be for them? So if it's a planned time off work, so maternity leave, for instance, you have the advantage of being able to both psychologically and practically plan your return to work well in advance. But for me, this was completely unscheduled, completely unexpected. And so from my point of view, it's uh, the things that I found particularly useful were just staying in good communication with my clinical directors because they couldn't help me unless I communicated to them what my needs were. I was absolutely blessed that they were kind, sympathetic individuals that they were. Um, and I know that not everybody necessarily has that blessing. I think letting your colleagues know what particular things you're concerned about so that they can, they can help you. I think being prepared psychologically that it may not work the first time and having a plan B. Scheduling your first shifts with waypoints that I, you know, I will do three days and then I will meet with my professional lead again and we'll talk about what we need to do uh, before I do my first out of hours shift, I will meet with my professional lead and talk about what we might need to do. Just being really active um, about meeting, talking about what's happened so far and making plans for going forward. I also have the benefit of a great occupational health consultant who was incredibly helpful, both at communicating to my line managers about what modifications I might need. For example, there are lots of options if you have a visual impairment for IT to be made more visual impairment friendly. I didn't need that in the end, but knowing that she could facilitate that for me was really reassuring. Um, she gave me access to staff counselling, which again, I didn't pursue in the end, but knowing that that was accepted that a visual loss is a form of bereavement and I shouldn't feel that 
I, should, I, I don't deserve the right to be upset about that and feel those emotions. And going back to work again, being an emotionally tumultuous time, I, can, I should expect and embrace that and feel that I can speak to people if I need to. Um, if you do have access to that kind of service, you know, just, just take the opportunities that, that you can and just good communication with your line managers and give yourself time and permission for it not to go well the first time round and feel that having a plan B is not a failure, it's just another way of going about the same thing to get to the goal that you want to.